0: Be seated. So, as I've been going through this whole series on the Gospel of Mark, and I know it's been a long one, <clears throat> we have this week, next week we talk about the burial of Jesus, and then it's the resurrection. And then the week after that will be the final, the conclusion week. And I started thinking through how this is all culminating, and it's just been very very impactful for me to systematically, intentionally preach through every verse in the Gospel of Mark. And when we first decided to do this series, it was, was, uh, just to be honest, you know, all these degrees and experience, it was all very intimidating, honestly, because I knew there was going to be what people call trouble passages that I would have to wrestle through and walk you through. And there would be offensive passages. There would be a lot of things that would come from the gospel. Like I also knew that some people would get bored with it. 80 sermons in a series is a lot. I also knew that many people would not hear most of the sermons. And so some people would pick up, you know, hear chapter 3 and chapter 4 and not hear it again till chapter 9, and that also discouraged me a little bit. So there were a lot of consequences in deciding to do this series, and yes, we have about three messages left after today, and that'll be it. I encourage you to make sure you catch each one of them, but I started thinking through all of that, and I came up with the, the, the title for today's message is the consequences of the cross as we look at. The biblical perspective from the Gospel of Mark about the death of our Savior Jesus on the cross. So, in the way of introduction, many of you have probably heard of this thing called Newton's third law. It says, For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Well, many have taken that physics concept and they have paraphrased it for morality and spirituality, and they've paraphrased it and changed it to this for every behavior, There is a consequence. And when you hear the word consequences, what's the first thing you think of? Probably something negative, right? Oh, consequences. And mostly we do see consequences as something that we have to endure because of our words or our choices or our actions or how we treat other people. Sometimes... When we experience consequences, we think they're a little bit unfair. Well, yeah, I deserve something, but that's too much for what I did. So maybe we feel like sometimes the consequences go beyond what our actions might deserve. You know, cancel culture does this a lot. Somebody says something offensive or makes a mistake, and it it could cost them everything. We especially fear consequences that we might suffer Because of someone else's choices or actions or words. That really stinks, right? Someone else makes a mistake. Someone else does something evil. And their actions bring upon us consequences that we don't deserve. And we can feel these consequences hit us in many ways, right? We understand that that there are physical consequences. Maybe there's an injury or pain of some type. Sometimes the consequences are emotional. Sadness, depression. Sometimes consequences that we endure are political. Sometimes they're financial. Sometimes consequences that we suffer are professional and our job. And then there's sometimes where consequences that we endure are personal or centered around our family something we have done or something someone else does that hurts us personally or our family members. And that's why that's why we fear consequences so much, right? because and that's the reason why humanly speaking, we hope to avoid consequences wherever possible. Even even if we, nobody's ever said, I hope I endure every consequence I deserve. Deep inside, what we really think is, I hope I can avoid them or at least minimize them. We avoid them when we deserve them, and we especially avoid them if we think they're unfair. Sometimes we know of people in our life that escape consequences they deserve, maybe because of privilege, maybe just sheer luck. Maybe they manipulate process or a system. And that seems unfair too, right? I mean, if I've got to endure consequences, why can't they? Consequences can be small. Consequences can be consequential. (laughs) You know, a small one can be like, you know, a late fee. Now, I'm really good at getting out of those, by the way. I just want you to know that. I'll put that out there. I'm really good at getting. But consequences can be like a late fee. Sometimes consequences can be massive, painful, painful something that radically changes your life forever. But sometimes there are rare occasions when consequences are the exact opposite of all of that, when consequences become an unexpected, unsought-after blessing, especially when that blessing is caused by someone else's actions. Today we're going to look at the death of Jesus in a very different way. We're going to look at it in a way where we decide and we try to decipher and understand what the exact consequences are of the cross. Consequences that, frankly, are playing out at this very moment in this very room. Consequences that continue to echo to this very day. Mark chapter 15, starting with verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, (coughs) put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain from the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who had stood facing him saw that in this way, he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. And there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger of Joseph and Salomon. And when he was in Galilee... They followed him and ministered him, and they were there also, many other women, who came up with him to Jerusalem. So let's talk about the consequences. I'm switching things up today. We have to go with the spiritual part of this passage first because of the way it's laid out and the, and the, and the gravity of the death of Jesus. So normally we do history, spiritual, and personal We're going to start with the spiritual. What about God? What is he doing? Why and how does he do it? I want to talk about the immediate consequences. First of all, we see that Scripture says there's darkness in Judea. This is a fascinating historical event. It's noon, by the way. It's noon. Jesus is on the cross. That's the time of day. And this time of year, the sun in Judea would be at its brightest point at any moment of the year. Yet here, there is actual physical darkness. And since we know, ironically... Historically speaking, whether you're a Christian or not, this can be historically verified. The crucifixion of Jesus, we know the exact day and the exact time. And we know because of that, it was not a solar eclipse. So get that out of your head. We can track those back and that was not a solar eclipse. But there are several non-biblical historical references surrounding this recorded event in scripture. Did you know that? Several non-biblical sources clearly indicate there was an unexplained darkness in Judea that day. Isn't that fascinating? Yet scripture had predicted this moment for thousands of years. And you could see why references to an unexplained darkness in Judea that day, this ridiculously cosmic event, that would have been quite unnerving for people that are there to see it, wouldn't you think? But this is what the scripture has called for thousands of years, the day of the Lord. A lot of people get confused, the day of the Lord with the day of judgment. No, this is the day of the Lord. Spoken of by almost all the prophets, the day of the Lord was always a Jewish expression for God's judgment. It had always been associated with some sort of darkness, whether it be metaphoric or physical. The idea was the day of the Lord and darkness, and that was kind of an idiom that existed in the Jewish culture throughout the Old Testament. It's mentioned in Genesis. It's mentioned in Exodus. It's mentioned in Isaiah. It's mentioned in the prophet Joel. It's mentioned in Amos. It's mentioned in Zephaniah, a book probably none of you have ever read. (laughs) Darkness was metaphoric and physically tied to judgment. And experiencing this in Judea that day must have been absolutely surreal. Surreal. Some witnesses to the crucifixion knew this wasn't a coincidence. <clears throat> Remember, there had been 30,000 Roman crucifixions in Judea by this time. But this one was not ordinary. To some, it is very clear that this Jesus was very different. So that's the first immediate consequence of the cross. I want you to see another one. There are the cries of Jesus. Even at his weakest, at his lowest moment, what we know about Jesus is because he, didn't, he refused in the passage before last week, we learned that he refused the, the pain-killing substance or solution they would give to people who are being crucified to give them comfort. He didn't want that. Even at his weakest, lowest moment, he's in full control. He has full capacity. He is not delirious. He's not fading. Our Jesus, our Lord, is on the cross, fully aware, and he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lima lak sabachthani. I knew I was going to mess that up one day, one moment here today. Which means, as we know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is a crucial, crucial moment. This phrase that he utters, this cry, this loud cry, it's the culmination of what Jesus feared the most the night before when he was praying in the garden in Gethsemane. Did you know that? This was his moment right here when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the moment of his greatest suffering. Not the lashings, not the beatings, not the crown of thorns, this moment. And he knew the whole time Jesus did this moment was going to come. And even here, his cry, get this, this is is amazing, this is how much... Full control of his faculties he has. This cry is a direct quote from Scripture. From a prophecy in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David wrote that. And Jesus is on the cross. Immense suffering that Megan talked about earlier. Yet he has the presence of mind to quote Scripture. Everyone knew what he said. Eloi, Eloi. They know what that means. It means, my God, my God. But even now, some continue the mockery. Eloi, Eloi, nah, he's saying Elijah, Elijah. He wants Elijah to come save him. Why have you forgotten me, Elijah? See, the Old Testament had taught through Malachi and other places that when Messiah came, Elijah would come as well. But some took that concept a little further. By the first century, most Jews believed that Elijah could be called upon in a difficult time for intervention, sort of like Catholic Mary is today. That's how it was treated. And offering vinegar, that's a mockery as well. Here's what they're saying. He calls for Elijah to save him. And you know what the vinegar really is? Let's keep him alive a little longer. Let's see if Elijah comes to help him out. It's mockery. It's sheer mockery. But Jesus refuses the vinegar and he cries aloud one last time. The words that he cried out are recorded in other Gospels, but Mark leaves out the specific words. But Mark tells us after he cries out one last time, he gave up his life by choice. on his timetable, through his own power. And what were these cries? These cries are not out of physical pain, but they were cries of him facing the darkness, the wrath, and the judgment of the Father. Some say God was not there. Oh, he was there. He was there in full judgment of the Son on our behalf. And that's when the scripture tells us about these visible consequences. Immediately there's physical consequences at that moment. Other gospels tell us of earthquakes and people that are walking out of the tombs and all those things are talked about in Matthew and and Luke and all those. But there are other immediate visible consequences resulting from the death of the Son of God who has just faced the judgment of the Father. And Mark was sure to include this stunning event that was, frankly, not just religious and spiritual, but it was actually quite political there's a ripping of this heavy veil and this veil would have been several inches thick a veil in the temple from top to bottom there were dozens of curtains and veils in the temple this was the most important of all of them this was the most infamous veil in the temple it was separating all other rooms from the holy of holies that's the place where only the jewish high priest could go once a year on the day of atonement And no one else. And if he went in the wrong way, he would die. But right immediately on the death of Jesus, the veil is ripped from top to bottom. It is thrown open. And now anyone can go in the Holy of Holies. Two actual physical consequences immediately of the death of Jesus. And religious piety has been wholly eviscerated. Let's look at the historical part of this passage. What about man and what happened with people in this passage? What do they do and why and how do they do it? I want you to see one of the other consequences of the cross in this passage is unexpected grace. And this is just a fantastic story. Those things about the temple and the darkness and the earthquakes, those aren't the most amazing consequences of the cross. They're interesting, they're cool. But immediately, with the death of Jesus, something miraculous happens, and that is this. The church, the kingdom of heaven, begins to expand that moment. Spiritual life springs forth. And who was the first consequence of the cross in a spiritual way? It's a Gentile, a pagan Roman military commander, the centurion says in Luke chapter 23, verse 47, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. Mark gives us more details. He says, this man was the son of God. He knows this crucifixion, this centurion, the guy who's overseeing it, by the way. He knows this crucifixion is different than any other previous of the hundreds, maybe thousands that he has overseen on behalf of Rome. He, this Roman pagan centurion, was first to comprehend the cosmic significance of what had happened that day just outside of Jerusalem at Golgotha. He is right near the cross doing his job, looking on, watching it all, and suddenly he knows exactly who Jesus is. He's the son of God. Being a pagan Roman... He didn't have a background in the Jewish Old Testament. He knows nothing about Amos and Obadiah and Isaiah and Prophet this and prophet that. He doesn't even know the, can't even pronounce the names like me. He can't even pronounce them. He doesn't know anything about the Jewish God Jehovah. He hasn't been exposed to Jesus' teachings for the last three years. But when God's sovereign grace intervenes and he brings to full bear the consequences of the cross prior knowledge is, in fact, irrelevant. God gave him eyes to see past all the mockery, all the scorn, all the beatings, all the shame, and in that moment, the Roman centurion sees exactly who Jesus really is. Truly, this is the Son of God who came to die in my place so that I may have access to the Holy of Holies. Somehow, it all made sense to him. Divine intervention transforms him. And also the scripture says several that were in his charge, other Roman soldiers saw this and they also believe. Immediately there is a Gentile Roman church right there on the hill of Gagotha. Then we see a story of faithful courage. Mark points out the women in verse 41 that are with Jesus. And Mark says these are the women... That went back to him at the very beginning of his ministry. They said, the scripture says that they walked with him and they served him while he was in Galilee. That's where the Jesus' ministry started. They were eyewitnesses, these women, to his entire ministry. They would also be, by the way, the first eyewitnesses to his resurrection. While all the other men and the, and the disciples and the apostles are hiding out, afraid, these women are still there. They're grieving. They're watching, they're waiting, they're anticipating. They aren't apostles. Yet with faith and understanding that the men don't have, even though, by the way, these men had been given the ability to go out in twos, remember, earlier on and, and perform miracles in the name of Jesus, they've seen all that, they know the power. These women didn't do that, yet they believe first. You know what this is evidence of? I love this, this is a great, what we call in the industry, a callback. Okay? Do you remember the story? I preached a sermon called a Mary moment. This all goes back to Mary who was Lazarus's sister. When they were all there a week before Jesus' death, they first get into Jerusalem. They're having dinner together. And she pours out and wastes an expensive flask of anointing oil. We only needed a couple drops. She pours the whole thing on Jesus. That close unsolicited, personal, private realization that she had, the fact that she knew who Jesus really was one week before he died. And I shared with you in that passage that we preached that week that she was the first in that whole circle of disciples and followers and apostles, she was the first with full gospel understanding. She anticipated with that anointing the death of Jesus, but also his resurrection. And no doubt... Throughout the week, as she shared this experience with the other women as they served and walked about, the story with these other faithful women took hold. And in Jesus' inner circle, there's a group of women who have been with Jesus all along who witnessed Mary. Remember what the disciples did to Mary, Lazarus' sister, when she poured out the oil? They yelled at her. What are you doing, stupid? That's expensive. What are you, an idiot? You're a fool. And what did Jesus do? Leave her alone. She knows what she's doing. You don't. And no doubt, that incident caught a lot of people's attention. Mary, why did you do that? And I imagine through tears and just emotion, let me tell you why I know who he is. Oh, I know. And as they talk about it all week, this is the reason they have this faithful courage to be there, looking at the cross while everyone else is running away scared. Imagine the glorious discussions they had about Jesus powerful, captivating stories that were all dismissed by the men. Then we see another eternal consequence. All of them are transformed forever. You have two miraculous consequences, right? First, the women with the intimate knowledge of Jesus and all of his teachings. Then you have these Gentile pagan Roman soldiers with absolutely no knowledge who have seen hundreds, maybe thousands of crucifixions by their own eyes, with their own hands. They weren't worshipers of Jehovah. They weren't familiar with Elijah or Psalms or pagan. They're just pagan secular Roman soldiers. Yet miraculously, both groups coming from totally different experiences embraced spiritual truth, dedicating the rest of their lives to a man they had just crucified. We know, in fact, this is not speculation or acts, that both groups, the women and those Roman soldiers, had a massive impact on the first century church. We know this. Who knows how many other soldiers and women heard those stories recounted of Golgotha that day and the impact it had. Both groups were transformed into powerful messengers of the kingdom, witnesses to the consequences of that cross. That's a lot there for you to chew on, but I want to talk, take you to the personal aspect of the story of the cross. I'm going to talk about personal consequences. By personal, I mean you. This was the tweet I sent out this week, social media. Faith in Jesus isn't a choice. It's the miraculous consequence of being unexpectedly targeted by God's grace. These women, these soldiers are all examples of the glorious consequences of the cross, and we still experience consequences like that today. I want you to see that there are some unavoidable results that come from the cross. When God starts the process of saving his children, the consequences, the end result is unavoidable for us as well. As a matter of fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, that means when we're able to see who Jesus really is, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You know what Paul is describing here? A process of enlightenment, a process of redemption, a process where the consequences of the cross play out. And there is, frankly, if you think about it, there is no other rational, logical way to interpret these consequences that we read about today other than this they're miraculous. They're unexpected manifestations of God's grace. Three years earlier, these women, they didn't believe they would be at the cross watching Jesus die, yet there they are. And when Passover detail for these Roman soldiers and the centurions, when Passover detail started a week earlier, they're there to keep the peace, remember? The Roman centurion had no idea he would become a follower of Jesus, yet there he does. Unavoidable consequences of the cross fully upended all of their lives, transformed their value systems, and they were never the same. See, once God started the process, the unavoidable result was this, the irresistible gift of faith that enabled them to follow Jesus. For us today, the result of the consequences of the cross are just as miraculous and just as unavoidable. When the consequences of the cross manifest themselves in your life, there is only one end. You will follow Jesus. Because there is this thing I like to call invincible mercy. I'm going to read this passage to you from Psalm chapter 103, verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Boy, I could just close right there with that one, huh? How many of you are glad that that's in the Bible? Just one of you in the middle here. Okay, two, okay. I mean, talk about avoiding consequences we deserve. Church, this is what makes our personal consequences of the cross so stunning. Because becoming a consequence of the cross and and if you're a child of God, that's really all you want, right? I just want to be a consequence of the cross. Becoming a consequence of the cross only happens because of God's invincible mercy. This is the overwhelming part. This is why this is why I love recovery ministry so much. I've heard so many stories of invincible mercy that overwhelmed its target, no matter what the obstacles were. I remember just not too long ago, heard the story of a man who was in a, a jail cell laying on cold, hard concrete with nothing spiritual around him, and suddenly he recounted how the presence of God irresistibly penetrated his heart. There was no pastor there, no worship team, no pew, no church building, just cold prison concrete. Oh, and by the way, the presence of the Holy Spirit. Those two things. I remember another story. A woman who told me that she had started working a 12-step program for three years. And three years later, after being in the program for three years, she finally recognized the power of Jesus in her life. Two stories of people with no prior connection to God experiencing an unavoidable, invincible consequence of the cross because God decided it was time. This is how God always brings about the consequences of the cross today. It's invincible mercy with unavoidable results. You don't become a consequence of the cross because you try real hard. You don't become a consequence of the cross because you're a little bit smarter spiritually and are able to figure it out when other people can't. The only reason you become a consequence of the cross is because of inevitable, unconquerable mercy. Invincible grace. This is how God always brings about the consequence of the cross. Perhaps... God is doing that for you this moment, today. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you're about to experience the consequences of the cross on this Mother's Day. Maybe like the women, it will happen over time until one day it finally clicks and you finally get it. Oh my word, he's the son of God. Now I understand. I used to say it, now I understand it. Or perhaps for some of you, It'll be more sudden, more dramatic, like the unsuspecting centurion and his soldiers. Maybe it happens today. I'm not in charge of when it happens. If I was, grace life would be a lot bigger. (laughs) But I'm not in charge. See, let me close with these concepts. No matter the process that God uses to make you a consequence of the cross, and there's a myriad of ways he can do it, Here's what it will always do. When you become a consequence, it will cause unquenchable uh, gratefulness. Because when it happens, you will know Jesus has overwhelmed you with invincible mercy and irresistible grace. Even though you don't deserve it. Even though you probably didn't even want it. Yet here you are. Another miraculous consequence of the cross. Dear Jesus, we love being a consequence of the cross. Yes, the cross was painful for you. We know that. But the consequences that played out because of it gave us life. We recognize the only reason that we become consequences of the cross is inevitable, invincible mercy. We're so thankful that you don't give us everything we deserve. We ask, Father, that you would help us today as we leave here, whatever we're doing today, spending time with friends or family. Help us to take a moment to stop and thank you for making us a consequence of the cross. But we ask it in the name of our precious Jesus. Amen. We love you guys. It's good to see you. If you need anything, let us know we got your back. Have a great week.